So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the second chapter, verses 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers." And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you troubled us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I mean, the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask for illumination. Dear Lord, as we look at this passage and... Two questions come to mind, and we're going to delve into both of those questions. I know that there's no way that we can possibly deal with them in their fullness, because these are some of the great questions of theology and Christology. But I pray that you will give me focus, that you will put wings to my words so that we can cover all these verses, that we can stay focused all the way through, and that we can see you as a child or as an adolescent. And understand how God can, or at least the God-man, can grow and uh, be developing and at the same time be omniscient. And why you didn't sin when you caused great distress with your mother and father. So Lord, we ask that you would give us the understanding for those as we turn now to the text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of humanity, except for the very arrogant, those who really truthfully believe that they're on their own and masters of their own ships and cap- I mean, masters of their own fate, captains of their own ship, most of humanity are searching for what Simeon found as he held the baby Jesus in his arm and stared into his eyes and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Everybody wants to be saved. Most people want to be reconciled to their creator. Most people feel this sense of being lost. And that's the reason they crowd into churches or synagogues or temples or mosques around the world. They're looking in some way to be reconciled, to be redeemed. They know they're lost. They know they're sinners. Now, 
in his revelation, his one and only true revelation, that God that everyone seems to be searching for said, well, if you search for me with your whole heart, you will find me. But the only problem is, is no one is actually searching with their whole heart. No one is actually searching in the right places for the right God. Because that revelation also says in the Psalms, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so people might say they're looking for God, but actually what they're looking for is what God can bring. They might say they're looking for reconciliation, but they want the peace that reconciliation brings. And so they really don't want the one true God because if they did, they would be looking for him where he could be found. Now, Simeon recognized that as he looked into the face of his Savior. He realized that salvation, that redemption was in this child that God has sent, that child who would later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. An absolutely exclusive path to salvation. Now, if everyone knew that Jesus was the path to salvation, then everyone would be saved because it's a no-brainer that they would follow Jesus and search for him where he could be found. But most people are not doing that. And so... The focus this morning, and we're going to pick it out of the text, is that Jesus is actually easy to find if you're looking for him in the right places. Now, let me make a point before we get started. I'm not talking about justification. Because we don't find Jesus, he finds us. We didn't choose him, he chose us. And we are thankful that Jesus, in his mercy and grace, reaches down into the sewer and pulls people like us out of it. But those who do come to know him, those who are regenerated, whether you have been saved for five minutes or 50 years, our quest in this life is to find Jesus. Just like Mary and Joseph are going to be searching for him frantically. And he's actually easy to find as long as we're looking for him where he can be found. And I'll bring that out as we head through our text. Now, we have a lot of text this morning, so I want to jump right into it. But let let, let me establish a vital backdrop to another question. Two questions we're going to answer this morning is, one, how can Jesus grow and change? And, 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 And then how can we find him where he is? And, and and when we get down to the 48th and 49th verses, we're going to ask the question, well, how on earth did Jesus not sin when he caused his parents such distress? And towards that end, I want to give you a little background that we have already established that would be very apparent to you if indeed we were reading through this as it was designed to be read, a letter from start to finish. We would have recognized something that is very important that Luke has made an overwhelming point of, and that is that Joseph and Mary have received plentiful affirmation that their son is indeed the Son of God. Starting at the very beginning. Beginning. Zechariah is visited by an angel. The angel says, your son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. A little bit later on, when Mary uh, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, an angel says that you are going to have a child and he is going to be the son of God. 
She made a trip down to see her relative Elizabeth and Zechariah. And Elizabeth confirmed it immediately saying, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Even her child leapt in her womb when Jesus as a fetus came in to proximity. Well, we also know that filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah had said in his Benedictus that Jesus was the horn of his salvation, that he was the light, the day spring from on high. Later on, the shepherds saw the angel come, and the angel said to those shepherds, Unto you has been born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, King of a kingdom and Lord, God in the flesh. And then what did the shepherds do? They immediately ran into Bethlehem, found Joseph and Mary, and explained to them what had happened. The Shekinah glory of God had come and explained to them that Jesus is the Christ. Then, of course, they go to the temple. And who's there to meet them but old Simeon? He grabs the child and says, now I can die in peace. Shalom. Peace with God because my eyes have seen my salvation in this child. He's the light to the Gentiles. He's the glory of his people Israel and then of course Anna gets into the, the, the mix by going around and telling everyone that the redeemer of Jerusalem has come so in other words what I want you to see before we even get into this is that there has been almost in staccato fashion one affirmation after another after another that Jesus is God he's the the son of God he's God in the flesh he oh I left out poor Joseph of course he was outside of Luke in Matthew but you remember what the angel told him he's Emmanuel God with us so in other words, they've had plenty of affirmation. And that will become, I'll bring that to your attention when we get down into the text a little bit farther. Now, as I said, we have a lot of text, so put your tennis shoes on. Give me your attention because we are going to, we're going to move through it relatively quickly um, this morning. Look in the 39th verse. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Are you starting to get the point that Luke is making to you? I've made it over and over and over again. That the Old Testament is flowing into the New. That they are being diligent and faithful to all the Old Testament practices. And Jesus is right along with them. And therefore it is the passive obedience and the fulfillment of all righteousness. It is happening over and over again. Well... Now, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, I don't know if you recognize this, but between the comma, the first part of that sentence, and the last part of that sentence, quite a lot happens. The skeptics love this kind of stuff. They love to point this out and say, Ah, Luke, look at all the stuff that Luke left out. Because, of course, you know, if you read Matthew, that they didn't go immediately to Nazareth. Actually, they went back to Bethlehem, where probably for the, at least a year they lived there. And then the Magi came with gifts, and Herod got wind that there was a king born. He sent his soldiers there to kill all of the newborn children. The angel came to Joseph, said, Joseph, run to Egypt. He did so, waited till King Herod died, which might have been a year or two, and then came back, bypassed Bethlehem, and... And then went to Nazareth. So a lot was left out. And the skeptics say, there's no way that Luke the historian is going to leave that out. But I beg to differ. (laughs) No gospel writer covers everything. In fact, you may remember 
When we wrapped up our study of John, the very last verse, John says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's no way to write everything that happened to Jesus. So therefore, the various gospel writers, they stay on task. And that's what Luke's doing. He's staying on task. He's got a theme that he wants to bring out. Now verse 40 is so rich, so doctrinally deep that I almost actually just limited this morning to the first two verses. I decided not to, so that's the reason I've got to run through this. So we're not going to go anywhere near as deep into this as we could. But look what we read in the 40th verse. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now the question that immediately comes to mind, and we are going to have it looked at in several different ways and so I'm going to actually address it at the end of all this is how is it possible for Jesus the God man to grow how is it possible for him to develop how is it possible both spiritually and bent I mean and physically to 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 actually um, go through this increase that is discussed here now I am going to put off the conversation to the end because it's going to pop up several times but let me at least go ahead and point this out about this verse first of all uh, Luke tells us he grew strong Now part of that is just the natural growing up. When children grow up, they get stronger. Their legs become stronger. They can run faster. Their arms become stronger. They can pick up more. They can do more things. And so in one sense, Luke is saying that the child grew up strong. But I think also he's telling us that he was strong in stature. That Jesus was physically strong. Now unfortunately, we have this image in our minds created by Hollywood of this milky, weak, uh, wimpy Jesus, you know, that is so weak he can hardly walk around. Well, I don't believe that's the truth. Jesus lived a rigorous life. He did a lot of traveling up and down mountains. He lived 40 days in the desert without eating anything. He went through unspeakable torture on the cross. Even though he only lasted six hours, he, he took on the wrath of God there. And so therefore, he had to be a very strong physical specimen. So I think these pictures of Jesus is a sort of a wimpy guy. I don't think that they are correct. But he also goes on and says he, he was filled with wisdom. He grew in wisdom. Now that doesn't mean just that he grew in knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are different things. I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus was not a brilliant, had a brilliant mind. But wisdom, as James makes very clear in his letter, we studied it just recently, true wisdom comes from God. That's the wisdom is taking knowledge and information and putting it into practice according to God's laws. So there is a growth not only in the physical nature of Christ, but there's a growth in the spiritual nature of Christ, of his understanding of who he is. And as I said, I'm going to put off a further conversation to that till the end because this is one of the major cruxes, actually, of this whole passage. Well, there's one last sentence there, and I hate to keep telling you I'm putting everything off, but I'm not even going to deal with that last sentence here this morning. I'm going to address it in the after church because it is quite complex. How is it possible that Jesus would have grace from the Father? That's what that word is in the the. 
Greek. Favor, the ESV translates it, and I think rightfully so because that's the way it's used. But the New American Standard, the NIV, will translate that as grace because that's the word that it is. So how does Jesus get grace when we think of grace as undeserved merit? Well, Jesus didn't have any undeservedness in his life, so therefore, this is deserved grace. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, come to the after church. I'll kind of break that down for you. Three types of grace that we have in scriptures. Well, anyway, with that said, now we're going to get into the story of how this all came about. Look in the 41st verse. Now, his parents went to, the, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Most of you know that the Passover was one of three pilgrimage feasts. Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And when I say a pilgrimage feast, the, the law stated that every man would go to Jerusalem for these feasts. Now, when they were traveling around in the desert and it was just them, well, that was easy because they were all together. But after the Assyrian and the Babylonian dispersion and the people are all over the known world at that time, that became increasingly increasingly difficult. But by Jesus' time, even people that lived just down the street were not going up to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. So my point is this. It was considered to be a sign of deep faithfulness, of piety, of real religious fervor for a man to go to Jerusalem Every single year for the Passover. Just once again, we see Mary and Joseph as that faithful, pious parents, earthly parents of Christ. But if it was a sign of faithfulness for a man to go every year, it was an off-the-charts sign of faithfulness for a woman to go. Because they weren't required by the law to go every year. But Mary showed her piety. Mary showed her love for the Lord. Her faithfulness to fulfill all righteousness. She went up with Joseph every year. And so this is something actually that we read in John. That Jesus continually would go up to Jerusalem um, at the time of the Passover. Well anyway look in verse 42. And when he was 12 years old. Speaking of Jesus now. They went up according to custom. Notice that it changes now from the law to custom. Uh, when a, a Jewish boy or a Hebrew boy uh, hits the age of 13, and not everyone agrees on that age, but basically when they hit the age of 13, there's a, a, there's a, a rite of passage, a becoming ma- a man ritual that they go to that's called a bar mitzvah. When we were in Jerusalem, you saw a whole bunch of bar mitzvahs because um, they would all come to the to the the crying of the Western Wall to have them. But but anyway, um, that the word bar mitzvah actually means son of the covenant or son of the law, and, and it was as I said a, a becoming a man ritual that um, uh, uh, occurred when, according to custom, that that boy became accountable to God's covenant and God's law. It was also a custom that in the years or year that preceded that bar mitzvah, 
that's the, they, they would go up to Jerusalem, even if they didn't go every year, that the parents would take them, and there would be kind of an intense training when they would reach that stage, um, that to explain all the different places in the holy city, to take them to the temple, and to explain the mechanics of what it meant to be a Jew at that time. So probably, this is what's going on. Jesus is 12, so in, in, in preparation for his bar mitzvah, he's going to Jerusalem. We're not told that this is the first time he went to Jerusalem. He might have tagged along with his parents every time they went. But this is a red letter time. This is an important time. This is the time that he is preparing for his own bar mitzvah according to the customs of the Jews. Well, anyway, look in verse 43. And when the feast was ended, now again, I'm just pointing all these out, there again is a sign of great piety on the, uh, on the part of Joseph and Mary. Because I am told by scholars who know this kind of stuff, I think this is William Hendrickson who brought this out, that in, in, in those days, very few people stayed for the whole festival. In other words, you know the Passover kind of covers two festivals the day of the Passover and then the week-long uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows it. It was kind of all known as a Passover. Most people, especially those who live far away, would come to the Passover and maybe the first couple of days of the Unleavened Bread Feast, but then they would go home. Not Joseph and Mary. They would stay until the end of the feast. Just another sign of their extraordinary faithfulness to the Old Testament laws. And Jesus was raised in this environment. So when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Now, most of you know that I like to visualize things, but I have a hard time here visualizing this. How, how did this happen? There was a popular movie, gosh, I think it's probably about a decade ago now, um, called Home Alone. Did you ever see that movie about a ditzy family who, you know, had too much going on and too many kids and they go off on vacation and they're all in a frenzy and they somehow leave their eight-year-old boy at home for the duration of their, of their time. Well, this is kind of that in reverse. Instead of leaving him home, they leave him in Jerusalem. Now, how does that happen? How does it happen that a 12-year-old boy, your firstborn, and you're there to show him the place, how does he get left there and for you to go home? And to look at it from a different perspective, what, what did Jesus do? And how did he slip away so that he wasn't with them? You know, we all have that sort of picture in our mind of that mischievous boy who's sort of looking over his shoulder to see if his parents are watching him. And as soon as they get distracted, boof, off he is to do something mischievous. Well, of course, we know that's not Jesus. We know that he's not that way because he never sinned. So how did this work? Well, I guess we'll find out when we get to heaven. But I think at least my conjecture, and this is pure conjecture, is that this wasn't the first time that Jesus had gone to the temple to listen to the rabbis. In fact, I think he's taking advantage of an opportunity that he never would get in Nazareth because that's a hick town. And here the cream of the crop are there teaching. So I would imagine that he slipped away every day. And perhaps on this day, they just didn't recognize that he was there. But still, we moderns, now maybe that's how Jesus did it, but we moderns find it reprehensible for parents to go an entire day 
without realizing that their 12-year-old boy is missing. Look at the beginning of the next um, um, chapter. I mean, the next verse. They, in 44, and, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, assuming that he was in the group. Let me map this out for you because it becomes easier to understand. I, I told you several months ago when we were talking about Mary making the trip from Nazareth down to her, or her relative's house, Elizabeth and Zechariah, that no one traveled alone in those days. The, the story of the Good Samaritan ought to underscore that because there were bandits and highway robbers abounded along the major highways. And so from Galilee to Jerusalem was a major route. So they would band together in large caravans. And on a time like Passover, there would have been a whole bunch of people coming from Galilee that would gather together in this big, huge group and then make the entire trek by foot. So that group on that morning was getting together and you can imagine what kind of bedlam there would be. So somehow Jesus, everybody assumed that Jesus was with the other because you see, Mary and Joseph didn't walk side by side. Now, the tradition, and again this is something that scholars tell me, that was that the women and children would walk up front always. They, they led the way. Maybe that's a throwback from I, I mean, Jacob's day when he was afraid of Esau and he put the women and children up front. Uh, but for whatever reason, the children and the women were always in the front and the men and the young men, the older men, and even the teenagers who had been bar mitzvah would walk in the back. Jesus falls right in between those two groups as a 12-year-old. So it's not unusual at all that Joseph would expect his son, still 12, to be way up in front with his mother, with the children. And it is also not hard to, th to understand that Mary would think that her son, getting ready to be bar mitzvahs, wanted to act like a man and press his privilege and be in the back with his father. So they went an entire day assuming that he was with someone else. It really wasn't until that night, I guess, or the evening when they made camp and they started to fix dinner. Where is that boy? Call Jesus because supper's ready, you know? And that's when they began to look for him or search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. I doubt there's a parent here that doesn't know the sequence of emotions that occurs there, right? First of all, you're vexed, aren't you? Where is that boy? Then you get a little bit angry. If I ever find him, I'm going to choke him because he's putting me through this. But then that anger and vexation turns into concern when you try a couple of places and no one has seen him. And then that concern turns into fear when you begin to exhaust the places that he might be. And then that fear turns into out and out panic when you realize he's nowhere to be found. And it dawns on you we must have left him in Jerusalem. Well, there was nothing else to do on that particular day that they could do. When they did not found him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So there's nothing they could do except spend the night, wait till the morning. They're not going to travel at night. So Joseph and Mary head back to Jerusalem on their own, a day's journey. They've already traveled one day out. Now they've got to travel a day back. I don't think it was dangerous to do that, as I've just expressed. But I think they're okay because that road would have been filled with lots of people on Passover. 
Now, obviously, what they probably did, hoped against hope that they would find is as they approached the, the city on the third day that Jesus would be there in the gate because that's where normally you would wait, you know, because everybody met in the gate of the city. So they would have looked with great anticipation to see if Jesus was there. But then, of course, they get there and he's not. And so their fear just escalates. We read in the 46th verse, after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, it's not clear whether that three days is after they return to Jerusalem, where it would be a day out, a day back, three days searching, five days, or whether it was three days, sort of composite, a day out, a day back, and a full day of searching. And most scholars uh, are of the opinion that it's the latter, the three days, that for three full days now they have not found Jesus. But there's an image I want you to see, and it's an important image for this passage. I just want you to hold this in your mind because I want you to see Mary and Joseph frantically running around Jerusalem. It would be so clogged with people, they're looking for a needle in a haystack. Isaiah 53 tells us that there wasn't any special thing about Jesus. He's not going to stick out. He's just a normal Hebrew boy. But there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of people crammed into that old city. And if you've been there, you know it's not that big. Because remember, it's Passover that folds 50 days later into Pentecost, which was another one of the pilgrimage feasts. And so a lot of people were there. So here we have Joseph and Mary frantically searching for Jesus, running to and fro, going to every place they think he might be, asking questions, knocking on doors, going to the marketplace. Have you seen my son? (laughs) And finally, we're not told why they chose the temple last apparently but Jesus was certainly surprised they finally find him in the temple now I want you to remember that image because Joseph and Mary are searching for Jesus but they're looking for him in the wrong places not where he can be found doing what he came to this earth to do and so they, they, they see him in the temple. Now, most of you have seen models of the temple. You know that it's a massive complex, when we, not the inner courts, but the big court of Gentiles that's out there. And, and then all around the outer edges of Herod's temple, there were porticos. They were covered areas with columns. Now, especially on the eastern side, facing the, the, the tabernacle, I mean, or the, the sanctuary would face it, was an area called the colonnades or Solomon's um, porch. And we know Jesus taught in there. We know that uh, Peter and John taught in there in, in Acts 3. So it was a place where there was a gathering. The temple in Jerusalem was not just a place of worship. It, it was a place where sins were forgiven, where tithes were paid, where conversations were, where meetings occurred. It was a place where there was teaching and discipleship. And as I said, on this particular occasion, the 
cream of the crop would be there. The greatest rabbis in all of Israel would have come to Jerusalem to teach during the Passover because that's when everyone was there. And because Pentecost is just a month or so away, they would have probably still been there teaching. And Jesus, out of the podunked, boony town of Nazareth, never had the opportunity to sit at the feet of such learned men. And he was obviously taking advantage of it. He was there in the temple and we are told in the 47th verse, I'm sorry, the 46th verse, after three days of end in the temple, sitting among the teachers in the midst of the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. This was a Socratic method of teaching that they adhered to, very Greek in its origin, but used amongst the Hebrews as well, where the teacher would teach by asking questions. So there were many questions being asked, and that's the way Jesus would answer. But he also has his own questions for these rabbis. And the rabbis have never been exposed to anyone like this brilliant child. Now we're not told um, what their conversation was. But I'm imagining it had something to do with the interpretation of the Messiah. Of all those Old Testament prophecies. But of course that is still conjecture. But anyway, this is the scene that Joseph and Mary come upon. After frantically looking for him all over Jerusalem, they find him in the temple talking with these men. Now, we read in the 47th verse, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So here's what we need to see. This 12-year-old adolescent uh, is, is holding his own amongst the most learned men in Israel. And actually actually wowing them with his own knowledge and his own interpretation even though he had come from this little town of Nazareth. Now here's the point and this is where we're going to go with this and we're going to ask this question who's teaching Jesus? Where's he getting this knowledge? If, if, if he's a, a human being well wait a minute God is immutable and he's omniscient now, now, so how, what, what, what's going on? Where is this, this, this um, education occurring in Jesus? Because obviously that's what we're seeing. On the one hand, we're seeing an education. But on the other hand, we're seeing someone that has already been taught deeply by the Holy Spirit. And as I said, we're going to sort all that out after we get finished with this. Because he is, um, everyone is amazed. Now, this isn't the last time this is going to happen, as you know. In fact, um, it's going to happen several times in the Gospels. We're going to hear things like this from Matthew at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So in other words, this 12-year-old boy is sitting in the middle of the temple and he is astonishing everyone because he's teaching with authority. So where does he get that authority? And how does the relationship with that authority work in the boy who is both God and man? Well, as I said, we'll sort that out. But let's go ahead because we have this marvelous encounter between Mary and Jesus. Look in the 48th verse. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And I don't think that they were astonished for the same reason that the people were astonished. They're not astonished at his words. 
They're astonished at his demeanor. I mean, one would think that a boy from the hick town of Nazareth, never been to the big city as far as we know, who was lost for three days. Where did he eat? Where did he sleep? How did he, you know, get around? That he would be frantic, that he would be terrified, that he would be looking for his parents, but it looks like he could care less. He is so completely engaged in this conversation. He is totally distracted. And and so Joseph and Mary are astonished that Jesus seems to be right at home and not worried about anything at all. Well, that's when Mary has a question for Jesus. And his mother Mary said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Once again, parents, have you ever lost your child in a busy place? Have you ever looked around and that little one's not there? Happened to Kay and I years and years ago with Annie at Searstown. One time we looked around and she's not there. And, and there's this progression that occurs, right? It starts out with, okay, where did their the boy go? Talking about Jesus. And, and then that, that vexation becomes anger. That anger becomes fear. And the fear becomes panic. And the panic totally escalates to where you're finally saying, Oh, dear God, just give me my son back. Anything, dear Lord, would you please just give me my son back? And then all of a sudden you see that boy in the temple and all this relief floods down upon them, followed immediately by anger. Okay? I mean, that's the way it works. I'm going to kill you. You put me through such distress. How could you do this to your parents? But I hope you realize what Mary is accusing Jesus of. It's hugely important. Don't miss this. Because the fifth commandment tells us to honor our father and our mother. And Jesus has just put his mother and father through distress. And it looks like Mary is calling him out on it. How come you have not honored us by thinking of us and thinking of our concerns? So the question is, did Jesus break the fifth commandment? And I hope you realize the gravity of that question. Because if he did, Christianity implodes upon itself. Jesus would have gone to the cross to pay for his own sins and not yours. He would not have been the perfect sacrifice and he never would have been raised from the dead because the tomb is for sinners and Jesus would have been a sinner. So this is huge. Is Mary right in seeming to accuse Jesus of breaking that fifth commandment? Well, obviously, no is the answer. But let me explain to you why. And, and actually, Jesus is the one who answers all of this for us. So let's go ahead to the 49th verse and we'll understand. He says, and, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Now, I don't think he's saying, why were you concerned? Why were you upset? Why, you know, did, did you come back to Jerusalem for me? I, I think it's, it's, why were you looking for me elsewhere? Why weren't you looking for me here? And then he goes on and, and says in the next one, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, that's not exactly the way the underlying Greek has it. In fact, the old King James is a little bit closer. You know, the King James says, uh, did you not know I would be about my father's business? Well, the Greek would read something like this, the actual Greek. Did you not know that in the things of my father, it is necessary for me to be? Let me repeat that. Did you not know 
that in or about the things of my Father, it is necessary for me to exist, for me to be. I have come to be about the things of my Father. I have come as King of the Kingdom of Heaven. And I am here to do my Father's will. And so we see Jesus beginning to gain a perspective on who He is. I'm told that to be in my Father's house is an idiom. That's an idiomatic expression. And rightfully uh, um, translated to be in my Father's house. But He's not talking about physically being in church or physically being in the temple. It's about the things of the kingdom. It is about the things of God. And he wraps it up in one of the great verses. People press me sometimes for my life verse. Well, when I was coming out of alcohol, this was my life verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's what Jesus is doing. He is seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And why would you expect me to be anywhere else? These are profound words for a variety of reasons. First of all, they're words of distinction. Because Luke is the only one who actually gives us a picture of Jesus as an adolescent. And these are the first words that he speaks. So these are the first words that Jesus our Lord spoke that are recorded for us by the Holy Spirit in these Gospels. And it is so significant that in those words he says, My Father. Brothers and sisters, that was not normal. Okay? In the Old Testament, it talks about God as Father, but it's always like the Father of Israel, the Father of this, Father of that. No one claimed to be personally the Son of God. In fact, that's the reason they picked up stones on several occasions to stone Him. That's the reason that they testified against Him. He claims to be the Son of God. He's putting Himself equal with God. And so the very first sentence out of His mouth virtually is, Did you not know that I came here to be about my Father's business. Man, it just sets the stage for what Jesus is going to do for the rest of his life while he is here. He's about the kingdom and about his father's business. And so therefore what we see in Jesus even at 12 years old, notice the switch in perspective. He's making a move here between Joseph as his earthly father and Mary as his earthly mother. He's making a move to where now he's his father's son. He's the son of God and he is here to do the work that that father has left him to do. And so there's a transition that is actually occurring here in Jesus. And that is going to be very significant when we go back and ask the question, did Jesus sin? No. Was Mary right in saying that you have sinned and broken the fifth commandment? No, she wasn't. She was dead wrong. That's the reason at the beginning I mapped out that affirmation. Luke has been telling us since the beginning of the book over and over again how many times they have been told that Jesus is the Son of God. Four times angels came and told them, this is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Son of El Elyon, God Most High. 
And the Holy Spirit has over and over again overshadowing Mary, filling Zechariah, filling Elizabeth, filling John the Baptist, filling the, the shepherds. The shepherds go back and tell Mary and Joseph and then Simeon and Anna in the temple. Over and over again, they, they have been affirmed that Jesus is the Son of God. They should have known that. Brothers and sisters, there's such a lesson here. I don't have time to go into too much more than just the, what this means Christologically. But there is such a lesson for us in this. My goodness, if you recognize that God is God, you're not, and Jesus is Lord, it is going to save you so much trouble in life, so much angst, so much worry. I mean, what Joseph and Mary should have understood, of course they're going to go back to Jerusalem and find him, but they should have realized he's the son of God, folks. And God's eyes are much better than mine. And God's power is much better than my power. Yeah, we let him slip away, but we don't have to worry about him because his father is watching out after him. And Mary didn't quite get that. Now, we need to give Mary a pass, though. Because Mary is in a very difficult situation, right? She's changing. You know, she's having to see her own son in a different light. You remember what Simeon told her that, you know, the sword is going to pierce your, your, your soul, literally cut it in half. And I told you at that time that part of the reason was because Jesus was going to begin to distance himself from the family. He's, he's going to be moving into a closer relationship with the Father. And when he did that, it means that his allegiance, his focus is towards the Father, towards his heavenly Father and not the earthly Father. And so there, every relationship on earth must realize this, that it takes second place to the relationship with God. There's no more important relationship that anyone has, much less Jesus, the Son of God, with God his Father. And so Mary and Joseph have to take second place. Because after all, we are going to hear that the zeal for his father's house consumes him. And that's where he is in his father's house. But once again, as I told you, we need to give Mary a little bit of a pass. Because it's got to be difficult to make the transition from the mother who nursed this little boy and raised him and fed him and he's on his way to adulthood and just see that boy drift away. It's got to be hard for her to make the transition from mother to disciple because that's actually the transition she's got to make. To put it in the flowery language that we discussed last week when we talked about the radiant woman, Mary has to make the transition from being the mother of Christ to being the bride of Christ. Now, I know that sounds really weird to anyone outside that doesn't know Revelation 12. But that's basically what it is. That's what the radiant woman is. The messianic community that turns into the church. The mother of Christ turning into the bride of Christ. That's hard. So we're going to give Mary a pass a little bit. And we read actually in the next verse, 50, that they did not understand the th- saying that he spoke to them. We can't blame them for that, but they will. 51st verse we read and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive you always went down or up to Jerusalem always went down from it not just elevation that's the holy city 
and, and, and so therefore you always went down from that. So they go down to Nazareth and just in case you were worried about whether Jesus kept the fifth commandment, Luke makes sure that you know that there he was submissive to them. And then Mary treasured all this up in her heart. You know, I think those kinds of statements, we only get them in Luke. And I think they come from Luke's direct interviews of Mary when he was writing this. Remember, he's the historian. And I think what Mary is saying, Mary was a student of Scripture. We know that from her Magnificat. We know that she was a very devout woman. We know that she was extremely pious. And we know that she tended to ponder things. And so she wraps them up all in her heart and she ponders them. And I think that what she is saying here to Luke when he writes it is, Luke, yeah, the sword went right through my soul when I saw the boy pulling away from me and, and going off with his heavenly father. I knew that I had lost him even before I lost him. And of course, when they thrust that spear into his side on the cross, it absolutely broke my heart. But I would not exchange one minute of it. It's precious to me. Every minute that I spent as the mother of the son of God was precious to me. And so she treasures it up in her heart. And then we get the closing bookends. I didn't talk too much about the literary style that Luke is using. Well, there was an opening bookend before he went to the temple and a closing bookend in 39 and 40. 39 and 40 are the opening bookend of this story, the second trip to the temple, and this is the closing. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The only difference with that verse, almost identical to the one before, is that he is now also in favor with man. He hasn't become that despised lightning rod that will be hated by his own people and murdered on the cross. He is in favor with everyone who saw him. I promised you, and I've been promising you all along, that I was going to explain a little bit of what's going on with Jesus and how this development occurs. I hope I've explained the first question or the other question about the fifth commandment and why Jesus did not break that. But let's see if we can understand how Jesus can grow and advance and develop in both a physical sense and a spiritual sense. Well, the answer is to be found in his dual nature, the homostatic union, the, 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 the God-man or the God-nature and the man-nature. And, and to use the language of Chalcedon, he's very God and very man. Okay, he's God and man at the exact same time. And that means that he's holy. And I don't mean H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy God and holy man. That means he's 100% God, he's 100% man. Now, in the after church, if we have time, I'm going to talk about some of the heresies that plagued the early church and still are around today that either tried to mold him together or separate him out. Neither one of those are true. And once again, it was in the Council of Chalcedon, the famous negative formula that he is without mixture or confusion, without separation or division. He's neither mixed or confused but he's not separated or divided. So he's, he's not schizophrenic. We don't have two complete different people banging around in one body. What we have is two natures and one person. Now, 
If you can accept that, I don't think we can fully understand it because it really requires more capability. Maybe you can understand, but I can't. It requires more mental capability than a finite mind can comprehend to understand how you can be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. But that's what scripture teaches us. But if you can accept that, then the development of Jesus becomes quite simple. Because the God nature is omniscient and immutable. Doesn't grow, doesn't learn, doesn't change. He knows everything and all things. The man nature, if it's 100% man tempted in all ways, even as we are yet without sin, if it is fully human, then he's finite in that humanity. He's mortal in that humanity. Of course, he, the grave's not going to hold him because he didn't sin, but nonetheless, he did die. And so we see Jesus is everything a human being is. Now, a human being is not omniscient, doesn't know all things. But the, but the divine nature does. And so the divine nature is constantly feeding Jesus what he wants him to know. Like, for instance, when he told the woman at the well in Samaria that she had five um, husbands. Jesus in his humanity didn't know that, but Jesus in his divinity did. And so the divinity tells the humanity what he wants to know. But then at the same time, we read elsewhere that Jesus himself says, I don't know when the second coming is going to be. So I am not in my humanity omniscient. I don't know all things. So I can learn. I can grow. I can develop both in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense because the Holy Spirit is the one guiding me in a very different way. I don't want to even compare ourselves to Jesus too closely, but in a different way, it's like we are when we turn to the Scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminates us. You can read the same Scripture from now till the time you pass from this world, and every time you read it, if you're reading it in the Spirit, He's going to reveal something new to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He illuminates you as you can handle it. Well, that's what the, the God nature of Jesus was doing to the man nature. Constantly telling him, this is what your relationship is with the Father. And even at this state, when he is only 12 years old, he had a real good understanding of what that meant. Now, there actually were a couple of applications that I wanted to make. Um, I don't have time for them, so I'm just going to kind of focus on one. And that's where we started out earlier. You, you see that image that I asked you to remember of Mary and Joseph frantically looking around for Jesus, but they're looking in all the wrong places? That, brothers and sisters, is most of humanity. Even those that God has pulled out of the darkness... Even those that he has pulled in himself, still so many are looking for Jesus in the wrong places. And you're not going to find him in the wrong place. Now, let me get two things very straight before I say this. One, as I've already stated, we don't find Jesus for our justification, for our changed hearts, for our regeneration. Jesus finds us. Okay, that's absolutely clear. Jesus came, our kids learned it in VBS. The Son of Man came to save and to find and save the lost. And so Jesus is the one who finds us for justification. I'm talking about post-justification because the scripture says before that, no one searches for God. Everyone's looking for God. The things that God can bring, but they're not looking for the real God. So they'll never find him because he's not in the places or the kind of God that they're looking for. Now, the second thing I want you to, to make absolutely clear to you, I'm going to say 
things like Jesus. You're not going to find Jesus in the sewer. You're not going to find him in the kingdoms of this world, the ones that Satan used to tempt Jesus, that Jesus says, oh, you know something, are you kidding me? Mine is the kingdom of heaven, and you're kind of trying to tempt me with these baubles that sparkle? No, Jesus is not going to be found there, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to go there to retrieve his own. Because, yes, Jesus will go into the sewer and reach down deep into that sewer and pull out even the grimiest person and pull him into the light. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here, folks. I wouldn't be here unless Jesus was willing to come to where I was to justify me. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is that when you seek Jesus as a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, when you seek Jesus as a Christian, you're going to waste your time if you're seeking for Him where He can't be found. And tragically, what happens to so many Christians when they look for Jesus where He can't be found, they become frustrated, so they just simply make a new Jesus. They just bring him down. They diminish him. And they make him someone who lives in the places that they're looking in this world. And the wretchedness and the wickedness of this world. That's not where you're going to find Jesus. If you want to find Jesus, turn to the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will come to you. Turn first to the work and the place that Jesus is going to be found. Because he is going to be found about his father's business. And if you are pursuing his father's business, then you're going to find Jesus. Because that's where he can be found. You're going to find Jesus in his church, his true church. You're going to find Jesus in his word. You're going to find Jesus in prayer. You're going to find Him in the sacraments. You're going to find Him in true corporate worship. You're going to find Him in fellowship. You're going to find Him in service. You're going to find Him in evangelism. You're going to find Him in missions. You're going to find Him doing the things of the kingdom because that is where He is. For He is the King of that kingdom. So brothers and sisters... We need to look for Jesus our whole lives. But we need to look for Him where He can be found. Let me leave you with that thought just put a different way. If indeed you are looking for Jesus, which every Christian must be because your heart yearns for Him, He's easy to find. He says, if you'll search for me with your whole heart, you will find me. He's easy to find as long as you're searching for him where he can be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the stories that you give us and the meaning and the depth of them. Lord, we are just so grateful. Um, what a beautiful story this is. What a transitional story this is. So much that we are not able to cover at a time like this. But Lord, we just give you the glory that we have, oh, as much time as you give us to continue to talk about it, to continue to learn. We know that your Holy Spirit is constantly increasing, developing us, just like Jesus' nature developed him. And we pray that as we continue to search for him, we will indeed search for him where he can be found. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.